one of the most, perhaps the central, extraordinary truth of the, the gospel is that the mistakes and failures of our past need not hinder our present relationship with God. Some things in life leave an enduring heritage, whether we like it or not. If you have a car accident and you lose your leg, you will not get it back this side of eternity. But actually, the the, the damage to our relationship with God that our sin does is not in that category. It need not hinder our relationship with God. That's a a central message of the last um, uh, ten or so chapters of Exodus. If you've been here, you've seen in the story of Exodus how God has delivered his people out of Egypt, (coughs) how he established a covenant with them, giving them the the ten commandments centrally. And we saw last week how he gave, gave instructions for the tabernacle to enable him to dwell amongst his people. But um, uh, Exodus 32 reveals that before the tabernacle was built, while Moses was still actually receiving instructions for its building, they messed up as a nation. And not just a bit, they messed up dramatically. They, they make an idol. Tom read us the story, a golden calf to worship instead of the living God who is invisible. And, in, and as such, they broke the second of the Ten Commandments, you shall not make an idol. So what's God going to do at this point? All of this history has been leading up to God dwelling in their midst. And now, when it seems that they are on the brink of it, they have made a monumental mess as a nation. What is God going to do? Well, the end of Exodus makes it very plain what God does. Though there is business to be done, and we'll look at that business this morning. In the end, the tabernacle gets built exactly as the plans Indeed, if you read through the last few chapters of of Exodus, if you read the the, uh, original instructions for the tabernacle, I I would excuse you for feeling a little bored because it just says um, again and again the instructions that they'd had, they made it exactly that way. In a sense, you see, either side of this monumental sin, things are exactly the same after the business that goes on in Exodus 32 to 34. And more than that, if you uh, uh, go to the end of Exodus and just glance with me for a minute, we find that it ends with the glory of God filling the tabernacle. Verse 34 of chapter 40, The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So, despite this monumental sin of Israel, the relationship that God has at the end of the book uh, of Exodus with his people is the same as before. 
And this is so, so important for us to, uh, us to grasp ourselves. Because it seems to me, as I, uh, as I talk to people pastorally, one of the great inhibitors of people's joy and freedom uh, 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 in their relationship with God, in their, in their Christian life, one of the great inhibitors is past regrets. I've done things that have marred my Christian life forever, we say to ourselves. And actually, that is not true. Well, it is true if your relationship with God was built initially on your perception of your own righteousness. It is true if your relationship with God initially was built on your, your vision for how God might use you in the world. But actually... Fundamentally, the gospel says our relationship with God is built upon Christ's finished work for us as sinners. And when we fail as believers, we actually should realise that God, from the beginning, saw all our sins, past, present and future. It may have been a shock to us, it was not a shock to him. He saw all the circumstances of our life, past, present and future. And he said, from the beginning, I will forgive all your sins. And through every circumstance of your life, I will do good to you and I will love you irrevocably. It may be a surprise to us when we mess up and a shock. And it may uh, 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 dent our sense of self-righteousness and our sense of vision for the wonderful ways in which God may or may not have used us. But it is not a surprise to God. That's what we need to see. That's what Israel is actually going to learn. Their sin... Their failure was significant, but in the long run it did not affect their relationship with God. So that's what we need to look at, and we need to ask three questions. One, relatively briefly, though I would have loved to have spent the whole of our time on, on this. Why, why did they go wrong? Um, and, and make these, these, uh, the, this golden calf that uh, Tom read to us about. Um, perhaps a few hints in the very first verse of chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, <coughs> Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. In, in the first place, it's their impatience, isn't it? Moses has been away for a long time and frankly they just feel impatient. Get on with the worshipping God. If you do not have patience, you will not be able to worship the living God. He doesn't give us everything immediately. Indeed, it is one of the essences of New Testament faith that, 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 that we wait the final consummation, the final glory of the new heaven and the new earth. And we live for now, waiting for that. A few months ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians 10 and, and the idea of, of delayed gratification being a central thing for believers to learn. 
And interestingly, 1 Corinthians 10 alludes back to this story. They were impatient and they had weak leadership. Did you see the people gathered around Aaron there? There's an ambiguity about that. Sometimes in the Bible, people gather around someone in sort of adulation. But actually, in the first few books of the Bible, more often they gather around in threat. Perhaps it's just left open as to whether they are gathering around to praise him and to... Uh, uh, to lift him up or to uh, threaten him, whatever way it is, Aaron, when he sees them gathering around them, quickly complies with their desires. Note, actually, he's not, in his own mind at least, completely capitulating when he makes this, uh, makes this golden calf um, uh, for them to worship. If you glance at uh, verse 5, uh, for instance, you see that he says they will, that, that they will thereby worship the Lord. He's trying to, uh, uh, to hold it together in a sort of syncretistic way. They're worshipping the way that they want. He's trying to claim that they're really worshipping the living God. And it doesn't work. He's a weak leader. We human beings need strong human leaders. We weren't made to walk alone. You know, the, those of us who are parents here, your children need you to be strong, courageous leaders. Husbands, you need to be courageous in leading your family. In particular, we need courageous leaders like home group leaders or, 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 or CU leaders or pastors who will speak the word of God to us faithfully and not compromise. We were not made to do it alone. We will always find ourselves at some point tempted to go astray. And we need Strong leaders. They were impatient. They, uh, uh, Aaron was a, a, a weak leader. <clears throat> and then, fundamentally, they seem to have, have had a desire to have God in their control. Let us make gods who will go before us, uh, they say. It's the, it's the essence of idolatry, that it, that it takes God from up there, sovereign, and, and puts him into a sort of containable um, package that then actually, in one sense, we have some control over. They had God amongst them up to then. And he was absolutely sovereign. He appeared in a pillar of cloud and fire. And when he moved, they moved. He went before them. But they didn't like that. We'll have God's. Uh, down here, thank you very much, and we'll pick up this calf and move it when we fancy moving it. Whatever we call that God, even if we call that God the Lord, and come to church, and yet fundamentally we are sovereign over our life, and I make the decisions and God can just bless me, thank you very much. We are worshipping an idol. We are no different from the people at that time. To worship the true and living God is to accept that he's absolutely sovereign over us 
And all we can do is bow before him and say, take me, I will go where you lead. Uh, We could have analysed that much more deeply, perhaps. But perhaps you can see connections with attitudes in your heart, I can in mine. As we are impatient and say, I don't want to follow a God who makes me wait. As we... uh, Uh, either decline to be strong leaders or decline to listen to leaders. As in the end, we want to have God in our control. Why did they go wrong for all those reasons and no doubt more? But what we need to focus on is another two questions. And the first of them, and the significant one is this. What then saved these people from judgment? And the first thing I want us to notice is it is the patience of God himself. Verse 9 of chapter 32, God speaks to um, Moses. I have seen these people, he says, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, singular, into a great nation. You see, God God is displaying his anger and showing His his wrath and his judgment is very, very real. But, and it is very significant, he is not just immediately going out there and doing it. He's speaking to Moses. He's warning. I mean, he uses this fascinating phrase, now leave me alone, Moses. Well, Moses was leaving him alone, wasn't he? He's, He's come there. Doesn't really want to go and judge these people. No, his anger... And, and uh, the necessity of judgment is very, very real in his heart and he talks to Moses about it. But he's coming to Moses as you find him again and again in Scripture doing the same thing with different leaders. He's coming to Moses implicitly to invite him to intercede on their behalf. God is amazingly patient, actually, in his uh, wrath at our sin. And uh, thank the Lord that there is here a skilled intercessor. They needed Moses at that point. Moses takes his lead from God uh, speaking to him. And he appeals to God in, in certain specific ways. He appeals, first of all, to God's, God's great purpose Verse 11, Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with your great power and your mighty hand? God, God has delivered them. He's begun a process delivering them from Egypt. Um, and Moses says, look, you've got this purpose for these people, God. Why should you immediately come and judge them? Then he appeals to God's, uh, God's uh, concern for his own reputation. Did you notice that in verse 12? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them on the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger and relent. Do not bring disaster on your, uh, uh, on your people. God is passionately concerned. For his reputation throughout scripture from beginning to end. One point in, in, uh, in the prophecy of Isaiah, God says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will not come in judgment. Moses knows that passion of God for his reputation. He knows 
how God's reputation will be sullied if the nation of Israel is wiped out. Even if he himself, notice, is saved. And he appeals on their behalf. And uh, uh, he appeals as well in verse um, uh, uh, 13 to God's promises. Verse 13, remember your servants Abraham, Isaac and Israel to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. Moses is a skilled intercessor. He is bringing back to God and reminding God in one sense, at God's invitation, certain fundamental things about God. He has an unstoppable purpose for the nation of Israel. He has a burning desire to see his, his name glorified throughout the world. And he, when he keep, makes promises, he keeps them. All of those things are fundamentally true and they stop God from coming in judgment. And the massive good news is that all of those things apply to us today too. God, says the New Testament, has a purpose for his people in general and if you are a believer here for you specifically. Philippians 1 verse 6, Paul says that he is confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God didn't just, when, when, when you became a Christian, when he turned your heart around from enmity to, towards him to love towards him, when he enabled you to see the glory of the gospel, he, he, he didn't just say, well, I'll do that so long as they happen to be a good boy or a good girl, but I could wipe that out at a moment. No, he set his Holy Spirit on you. And the Holy Spirit is described as a seal. That is, uh, that is a mark of his indelible ownership. The Holy Spirit is, is, is described as a down payment. That is a deposit given that one day will be redeemed in full. The Holy Spirit is described as the first fruits using an Old Testament image. That is the, the early sign that there will be one day a full harvest. The Holy Spirit, that, that, that work in your heart that God did, did in you is your guarantee that God who began a good work, will carry it on to completion. And uh, God's concern for his reputation as well in the world is still there, still applies to believers. And still trumps, actually, his... uh, a desire to punish sin. Look at, uh, uh, or, or hear from 1 Timothy 1 verse 16, for instance. Paul talking about himself. For this very reason, I was shown mercy, he says, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. In one sense, the Apostle Paul says, God uses me as a sinner, as the worst of sinners, as a display 
of his, uh, 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 as, as an, as an, as an uh, augmentation of his uh, reputation in the world. So that Christ Jesus might display his immense patience in me. Isn't that amazing? In one sense, of course, our changed life and our goodness and so on is a display of Jesus. But in another sense, his willingness to forgive sinners, even as bad as us, is a display of his glory to the world. Now, don't misunderstand that. People who, in a determined way, want to walk away from him and not follow him, he displays his glory in judgment, ultimately. But people who come to him, who seek his forgiveness, no matter how much they mess up, they become for him a display of his immense patience and his unimaginably great forgiveness. John Wesley um, the 18th century founder of Methodism. He used to visit condemned men in prison. In fact, uh, a lot of it was in Oxford, in the uh, Castle Prison, that you can now stay in as a hotel if you've got enough money. Um, the old uh, Gloucester Green Prison, um, which no longer exists, but one stone from that is actually uh, set into the uh, building of Magdalen Road Church, actually, symbolically, um, to represent the freedom that... Uh, uh, from, from prison that God's people enjoy. And uh, another prison which is no longer exists called the Bocardo, which was next to the Northgate. Wesley used to visit all of these and Newgate Prison in London and other places. And he used, to, he used to share the gospel often with people condemned to death. Why did he do that? Well, he did that in part because of their acute need. They were about to face the Lord of glory and they needed to find forgiveness. And many of them did. But he did that also in part because seeing those people paraded through the streets sometimes the very next day he would have himself locked in with murderers who had nothing to lose and they could have murdered him. But he would be locked in for the night with them pleading for them to put their faith in Christ. And then those same people paraded to the gallows singing hymns and rejoicing. He knew, displayed the glory of Jesus to the communities that they went through more than almost anything else. And I tell you, if that displayed the glory of Jesus, and don't you think, actually, you as someone who has messed up but is humbly penitent, can display the glory of Jesus here. Now God's, God is massively concerned for his reputation. But his reputation is not sullied by having the worst of sinners stand and say, Jesus forgave me. And so he loves to do it. And God is massively concerned too, still today, for 
his promises. Listen to what uh, Hebrews chapter 6 says. Uh, Talking about God's promises to Abraham, which of course have been appealed to here by Moses. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. People swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. But God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. So he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled take hold of the hope set before us and may be greatly encouraged. God not only said it, he swore by himself, simply for him to say that he was going to make an innumerable number of people was enough. But then, that's an unchangeable thing. But then to swear an oath by himself is a second unchangeable thing. An unbreakable promise that God has concerning you. So Moses interceded on behalf of the people. He knew God's concern for uh, his purpose, his reputation, his promises. And he appealed to those so that God did not come in judgment. We need intercessors today, don't we? Who understand that same God. And who can pray for us. God loves to hear prayers like that. But here's the really good news. There's already an intercessor who prays exactly like that without ceasing. It's Jesus. Listen to Romans 8, verse 34. Who um, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Or Hebrews 7 verse 25. Therefore he, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus sits at the right hand of God and he says, he, he says all of those things. He says, look God, he or she is a sinner. But actually, you have a purpose for them, don't you? That's an unstoppable purpose. Actually, actually, you have a passion for your own reputation and it will not be sullied by holding them up as a forgiven penitent sinner. You've made promises, haven't you, God? They will not be broken. And we both know that. Because I died on the cross for that person. I poured out my life 
paying for all of their sins so that they could go free. Why are we saved from God's judgment? Because we have a perfect intercessor, Jesus Christ. And the next question. Far too briefly, but we need to answer it. What did they need then? To, to get to the promised land, to move forward now. God has relented from judgment, but uh, it takes him a while. A bit more inter- interaction before they are ready to move on. First of all, chapter 33, verse 1. God promises an angel to go with them. The Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up from out of Egypt and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. And verse 4 makes it very plain that this is a massively distressing message. Yes, they might get to the promised land, perhaps, but they won't get there with God. And that's not good enough. So in verse 12, um, we find the next stage in the negotiation. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You've said I know you by name and you have found favour with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favour with you. Remember that this nation is your people. And the Lord said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Actually, that's a singular. My presence will go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. But Moses um, uh, just extends it a little bit. And Moses said, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. We need your presence, he says. All of us, please come with us. But even that in the story is not enough. They need God, not just an angel. They need, but they need more than just to know that God is out there somewhere. Moses needs a glimpse of his glory. Verse 18. Moses said, now show me your glory. And God answers that. First of all, in verse 19, he he promises to show him his goodness. I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. Then he promises to declare his name, which is tantamount to declaring his character. I will proclaim my name in your presence. And then he expands on that, what his his name means in, in, in one sense. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He is a merciful God. He is a compassionate God. And notice he is a Sovereign God, I will have upon whom I will have, he says. I'm in control. But he will not reveal himself fully, verse 20. But you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And then the story unfolds, God does this, he hides Moses, remember, in a crack 
in a rock. And when he has passed by, Moses can see his back and can hear him. Verse 5 of chapter 34. The Lord came down in the clouds, stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. He passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands of forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And yet there is still this tough side to God. He does not leave the guilty unpunished and so on. God has revealed his glory, his 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 character, his name to Moses. And uh, that is enough. Tabernacle gets built. The glory of God appears in the tabernacle and they move on. The New Testament wonder is that God has done more than that. For sinners like us. We are told in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, for instance, that God shows his glory in the face. Notice how significant that is, because you may not see my face and live. In the face of Jesus, God made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. When you read about the birth of Jesus this Christmas, you are reading about the glory of God. You are seeing the glory of God who came down and dwelt with us. When you read Jesus' teaching or see his compassion or his tenderness, and his anger, and his tough words, you are seeing the glory of God. When you see Jesus dying on the cross for your sins, you are seeing the glory of God. The Holy Spirit takes that, and he reveals the glory of God to you, in ways that Moses and Israel would have absolutely longed to see. And even though we sin, we still have that. Indeed, in a sense, we have that more fully displayed to us. Because now the glory of what God did for us is more clear after we sin. There was a time, let me put it this way, there was a time when God was horrified by your sin. But it was not when you did it. It was 2,000 years before that. When God the Son said, if it is possible, take this cup from me. When God the Son said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God was absolutely horrified by your sin in Jesus on that day. Because God the Son was separated from God the Father because God the Son was going to die. And that horror at your sin was, was so profound, I don't think we can begin to imagine it. 
But on that day it finished. Jesus Christ cried out, it is finished. And he's not surprised. And in a deep sense, he's not horrified any longer at the sins you commit. If you are a believer here, you'll be horrified, I know, because you will suddenly see new depths of your own heart and your own sin that you hadn't imagined. And it is crushing. It is. It is crushing for us for a while. And then we hear the voice of Jesus saying, I knew that all along. I died for that sin, just as all the other trivial ones. And I'm willing to welcome you back. I do not love you today any less than the day before you committed that sin. Because my love was never predicated on you not sinning. It was bound up with my death for you. All your sins, past, present and future. You cannot change the past. That is absolutely right. And there may be some consequences that live with us for the rest of our life as a result of our sin and failure. But God doesn't love you any less after you committed those sins than before. So I I want to encourage you today to set out actually with a new spring on your step on that path to the promised land as we leave the book of Exodus. I want you to imagine, just as the glory of God came down and inhabited the tabernacle and God dwelt with his people after their sin, I want you to realise that Jesus is still here with us now by his Spirit, dwelling amongst us. And you can go out of this place And you can give glory to Jesus and you can serve him perhaps even more profoundly than before you realised how sinful you were. There is the most extraordinary truth in the gospel. That actually our sins past, present and future cannot dent the love of God that is in Christ Jesus.